1983, the Dynatac 8000X cellular telephone, affectionately known as the brick, entered the market. Those of us of a certain age certainly remember it. Since then, cell phones have seamlessly woven themselves into our daily lives. These pocket-sized devices grant us access to seemingly endless information and provide countless ways to communicate with family, friends, and the world at large. In fact, many individuals have abandoned their landlines altogether, relying solely on their cell phones. Communication infrastructure is often among the first casualties of natural disasters. Standard cell towers and even landline networks are susceptible to damage leading to disruptions in telephone service, internet access, and potentially satellite-based communication devices. When citizens require rescue or urgent medical attention, effective communication becomes a matter of life and death. The inability to use a cell phone for its intended purpose can be both frustrating and unsafe. We have ample evidence of these disruptions. Hurricane Katrina struck in 2005, and the Federal Communications Commission tallied more than 1,000 cell sites lost. When Hurricane Michael hit Florida in 2018, about 70% of wireless sites were still not operational one week later, and in 2021, Hurricane Ida damaged 28% of the cell sites. The Northridge earthquake of 1994 in Los Angeles remains a significant event in California's seismic history. Back then, most of the general public didn't own cell phones and the internet was not as ubiquitous as it is today. However, more recent earthquakes provide valuable insights into how profoundly the next tremor could affect mobile service in the U.S. A magnitude 6.3 earthquake struck Christchurch, New Zealand in 2011. Cell service was disrupted for approximately five days. In 2008, Sichuan, China had a magnitude 7.9 earthquake, which caused over 2,300 cell phone towers to collapse. At the height of California's historic 2019 wildfire season, 874 towers were down. Primarily due to power challenges, 60 had damage related to wind and fire. After the Maui-Hawaii wildfire, 20 of the 21 cell tower sites serving West Maui were down. This is Kevin Peterson, and welcome to Weather Heroes. In today's episode, we delve into the pre-planning efforts by telecommunication companies, the steps taken to restore service and explore the intricacies of these vital communication structures. To help us with this, we visit with Tim Bernadez. Tim has worked at all levels in telecommunication companies and has been involved in planning and responding to catastrophic events. He may even have a few stories of his days of roping cows. Hey, Tim, thanks for joining us today. So let's start off with logistics. What types of things are the telecommunication companies looking for both before and after a disaster? Uh, let's use hurricanes as an example. Yeah, Kevin, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into, into cellular in general. If you think about it in the sense of a natural disaster or emergency, it's even more 
So we'll um, use Katrina as an example. The, the natural disasters of a hurricane give you a little bit more time to plan. So you can do some pre-planning, um, which usually consists of determining the highest probability of landfall, how to safely assemble a team outside of that landfall, but then can quickly respond with the gear and and the people and the technicians and everything that you need to, to kind of re-stand up cellular service, which is critical post any any disaster or any event. Um, the loss of cellular in the in a case of an emergency, you know, lives are at line, critical teaming, planning, all those things come to a complete stop. I mean, just think about getting up tomorrow and not being able to use your cell phone for anything. And then, then being in a sense that you have an emergency and you you have no way to communicate. Um, so it's vital to get the communications back up as quickly as you can. Can you tell me what the cellular infrastructure looks like today, the design, uh, strengths and weaknesses, and maybe even how it's grown since maybe like the 1980s to today? Yeah, so if you think about a, a cell tower, there's a lot that has to happen for us to be able to make a phone call from almost anywhere. And if you think about kind of a hub and spoke concept where you have uh, a data center uh, that sits in the middle of dozens of towers, and that communication center, all of the towers plug in to that center, but those towers also talk to each other. So you have this robust network where you have towers talking to one another so it knows when to hand your cell phone off from one tower to another uh, so you can maintain the highest quality signal and calls possible. But that's all feeding back to the kind of the data center where the data center is hooking into the telephone telco systems. That's where kind of all of the brains are happening. And um, that is a critical environment. So you've got stacked up UPSs, you've got a fortified building, usually very difficult to get into, very secure. But those are the main parts where you have the, the switch data center, you have the towers, you have the towers talking to each other and to the switch all simultaneously. So when you're looking at bandwidth and all those devices, and we know there's data, there's voice, and then obviously we use a lot of texting nowadays. Are all those running down that same pipeline? All of them are running down the same pipe, um, but they take different levels of that pipe's capacity. Voice phone calls take more capacity than text messaging, right? So you, cellular providers are trying to optimize, think about all of those communications as a pipe, as you described it, optimize how much traffic can go through that. So data, texting uses less of that pipe than say voice or other telemetry type devices that might be going over cellular. So Tim, in my own experience, I found that texting will usually work in a post-disaster environment, whereas voice won't or is very sketchy. Data is obviously out. So a lot of emergency planners advise folks to focus on texting in the initial stages of recovery. Is that wise advice? Yeah, yeah. I think texting, well, in a disaster, like the first thing you're going to try to figure out is what is working. And I think the highest probability that you're going to find is that you... As the systems come back online, because bandwidth is going to be very low, texting will often work well before voice or data. Um, so, yeah, that's good advice. Um, and that may geographically, if you're inside of a disaster area, that may work at one level 
you know, one, one section of town and not work at all in another. So that's just the instability of bringing up a cellular network once it's gone down. It's going to be a little clunky. You're going to have spots. It's not going to be seamless, you know, from the moment we get to switch back up and running. Um, but texting almost always will be one of the first things that works. So as we're looking at the growth of cellular service from the 80s to today, you know, we've had 4G, now we're in 5G primarily. They're looking at 6G, and I know they're probably looking even beyond, but what are the advantages of the 5G towers post-disaster? The biggest benefit is going to be capacity. So 5G can run about a million users, and I think it was a four kilometer square kilometers, whereas 4G can only do about 4,000. So if you're thinking about how do I get a network back up after a disaster to drive the most speed so I can do things quickly if I'm using data and the most users, 5G will help you do that. Now, 5G won't go as far from a signal perspective. So it'll be really good to get smaller areas up that are critical around command centers, hospitals, if there's a military component to whatever the disaster is. And then as you bring up your 4G sites, they'll expand that coverage outward. So definitely some advantages in the very short term after a disaster with 5G for all of those reasons. So Tim, how do the cell companies monitor the condition of the towers? How are you guys able to tell the difference between a a power outage versus, let's say, severely damaged tower, something flooded, for example. Yeah, it's come a long way. You know, think of a command center where, you know, every one of your cell towers is represented on the, on a map. And, you know, back in the 80s, when cell was coming into existence, it was very binary. It was either up or down. But with the advent of all of technology and sensors, you know, you can tell from a command center now, 80% of, of what the problem is. Is there is there water intrusion? Is there Did we hit a wind velocity that we know would damage antennas? Is it too hot? You know, we've lost power. That, and that what that does is it arms the, total, the, the providers with the ability to send immediately the right expertise to, to solve the problem. Obviously, it sounds like this power is, is key to the monitoring. I know you guys have been looking at a lot of backup power sources. Is that like a standard thing now? And, and how long does backup power last, generally speaking? Yeah, so again, a long way with technology, post-disasters in the 80s, you were pulling in big gas power generators, um, trying to get cell sites back up. But at the switch or the data centers, that consumes a tremendous amount of power. Uh, it's very difficult to do with generators. So now they... Uh, we have, uh, I think they're called goats now, where there are actually generators on wheels that pull up. So one, you can drive it wherever you need to get it. You can pull it right up to the cell tower. You can pull it up to the data switch. All of the ports to plug in are right on the side of this kind of traveling you know, power generator. And then on the buildings themselves, they've been equipped now to just basically plug straight from this mobile generator straight into the building that you're trying to power. And then depending on how much power you need, you can have one truck, you can have 10. It's sped up the process dramatically. And again, you just got to keep that that truck running. And uh, you know, so you're pouring, you're pulling gas in as you need, but it's a much more efficient 
a much faster way and actually a much more stable way to pull up towers or switches that have gone down. So I heard you mention goats and after a disaster, it's like a goat rodeo, obviously, <laughs> often, right? You know. So, but you know, I, I did promise everyone that you were going to tell us about roping cows. So, what is a cow? Uh, what does it do? And I believe there's some colts out there that might need some roping as well. That's right. Yeah, we have a whole farm of of, of things in the cellular world. So, cows are cells on wheel. They basically think of, I need to quickly get cellular coverage up because the cell site is critical and to bring the existing cell site up um, is going to take, you know, days, weeks due to the extents of the damage. So you basically bring in a cell on wheels and it's exactly what it is. You know, you pull in a tower, it's going to be smaller and in, in, in height, it's going to not go as far, but it's going to cover the immediate needs. And you're going to have a very rudimentary, but weather secure facility for the equipment that you need that sits with the cow. And in the 80s, that was the primary way to do it. I remember I ran the 99 Olympics for Nextel and, um, Nextel and uh, Motorola, and we had cows all over the place because we needed additional capacity. We didn't want to build you know, that capacity in full cell towers. So we pulled in cows and they work great. Colts are the same concept, but they're just a mobile cell tower. So think of it, the, in one case, you're pulling a trailer and you're kind of cranking things up and doing it that way. The colt is more like the goat in that it's just a big mobile, you can drive it exactly where you want it to go, cell tower, but the premise is the same. It's just the evolution from kind of pulling it on a trailer to it all being encompassed inside of a vehicle. Then you don't have to have the temporary building. Everything is secure inside of, of the vehicle itself. And again, just much more efficient, much faster way to bring capacity and bandwidth and cellular coverage to areas in distress. Okay, so a colt is like an upgraded cow is what you're saying. <laughs> that's right. It's the it's the new cow. Okay. Um, that, that's what that is. Okay. Does a colt have more capacity than a cow? I think only because technology has evolved. It's not because of the design of the colt. It's just that we can ram more technology into a much smaller space. And as the Colts came into existence, cellular technology was just evolving at an extremely rapid pace. So the answer is yes, but it's really just because we're technology has gotten become smaller in its ability to deliver more capacity. So when you're setting up these temporary towers right after a disaster, what are some of the things that you're looking for as where to place it up? Is line of sight an issue, proximity to existing towers uh, you've talked about the towers talk to each other uh, the height of the location competing towers i mean anytime you have a natural disaster the first thing you're trying to do is get staged as close as you safely can right so you're pulling in probably colts and goats at this point because of where we are with technology you're pulling in the text the, all the expertise and then the event happens and the next thing that happens is, is it safe? Can we safely move in to begin the process of, of pulling back up the cellular coverage? It has to be one of the first things that happens. So it's always, a you know, I don't want to say it's unsafe, but it's definitely a disaster area, right? There's just debris everywhere. They're still searching if there's been loss of life for people. But so you've got to protect your people and get them in as quickly as you can. And then once that happens, you 
immediately determine where are the critical communication points that we have to get up first. That's usually around wherever the command center is for the operation. That's usually going to be run by the local government or um, in a case of Katrina, it was the, the military. Then you're, you're looking at hospitals and those critical um, facilities to, to help people that are in distress. And then once you determine that, you're trying to place the goats or temporary towers in a makeshift grid because you need them to talk to one another. So that, that's how you kind of go through it. You're like stage, wait for the event. The minute it's safe, you get your people in, you determine the command centers, you determine hospitals or makeshift hospitals. You start to set up the goats so you can begin to talk from tower to tower and you try to create a perimeter of communications that quite honestly in the initial stages could be a mile right? A mile worth of communications as quickly as you can. So to put it all together, the command center can determine the extent and type of damage at the cell towers within a certain degree of reliability. Resources are pre-deployed, and then when safe, you're partnering with officials to determine high-value needs like hospitals, emergency services, etc. And then, and then at that point, you're making sure that the general population is back up 100%. Hey, that's exactly right. And you're trying to do it as quickly as you can because that's just the first layer of kind of getting the community back in action. Then you have businesses that you need to get up who've lost their communications or reliant as well. And you just start to go through the process of mapping out the duration it's going to take to get the the data switch back to full capacity, prioritized cell towers to bring them up kind of around that web that you've just created. Because as soon as you can pull that core up, then you can push and extend out your goats and cows and everything else. And you just begin to creep the network out until it gets back to full capacity, which can take weeks, um, depending on the extent of the damage. Talk to me about service goals, though. You, you mentioned weeks, but your goal of getting out there and at least getting the core, I guess, core communication needs addressed. That sounds like it's pretty quick. Yeah, we're talking within hours of being deemed safe enough to enter. So you again, you've got a very tactical group that's just waiting to go. You, you've had enough time to figure out where the command centers, where the hospitals. You, you have a pretty good idea of the extent of the overall damage. You've got logistical information of, you know, are there road outages? Like there's a lot that goes on, right? You can't just take off, right? Because you could end up in areas where, you know, the roads are damaged, bridges are damaged, it's unsafe. So you're mapping all of this out in the background, waiting for kind of that green light. And then you immediately, you know, within hours can have that beginning small network up. So emergency response and everyone can begin to function. Now, usually they have their own communications as well, right? So that, that's a totally different system, but they're trying to pull that up simultaneously and they're very reliant on both. So we, you're kind of working in partnership with a lot of different people to, to maximize the efficiency of everyone getting communications up as quickly as possible. How do you all coordinate with any local government entities? Yeah, it's all done through the command center. We, which you're pretty much invited to, you know, that's just not a place that everybody has access. So uh, I remember in Katrina, there were specific credentials that you had and you had to show, but once you had that, you were inside of the command center. So normally what you do is 
you know, that's where you learn the initial, this is where we, this is where we need to get up quickly and fast. And then, you know, you go and there's a lot of back and forth because at that time there's no communications unless you're bringing kind of point to point communications, which you have, right? Old walkie talkies where, you know, you can talk some distance, but not a great distance, right? And you're just trying as quickly as you can to get from, this is the first plan of attack to we're up and we can start to communicate. and But that all happens through the command center. Talk to me about the future of cell service, uh, really, I guess, in general, and how that might relate to resiliency and recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think very quickly, you know, we'll be less reliant on on permanent cell structures and more satellite-based, you know, we'll blanket the entire globe. I mean, we're already there. It's just not cost-effective for the most consumers. But so I think we'll get away from those types of disasters and the res- resiliency will will all be around our ability to maintain low orbit satellites and do those things safely and in, a, in, an, in an environmentally uh, safe way. But uh, so I think that over time that goes away. We also, just the technology and the way that it is advancing the concepts around the devices that we're carrying and what do you really need to have and and if the amount of redundancy that will be built into kind of the way that the communication systems work, I, I think we'll see less and less impact due to natural disasters. But I think we will open ourselves up more to hacking and other types of disasters that we just don't experience in, in the communication and data sectors today. We do for businesses. There's always breaches and hacks, but I think the more we go into technology inside of our cellular network, and as we expand that cellular network into satellites, et cetera, that there'll just be other disasters that um, we still haven't thought all the way through yet. Today, we learned about the telecommunications industry's efforts to create resiliency in the cellular infrastructure. We heard about the steps that they take in planning for and responding to disasters. We also learned a little bit about how cell service works and even picked up a few acronyms. For example, cows, cells on wheels, and colts, cells on light trucks. A more complete list of these can be found in the show notes. In the wake of a disaster, the environment becomes a crucible of challenges. In those frantic moments after catastrophe strikes, mobile service can falter, leaving us isolated and vulnerable. Mobile service isn't a mere convenience, it is a lifeline. For businesses, it's as vital as functional roadways. Restoring and maintaining this service is an economic imperative. Resilience pays dividends not only in recovery, but also in immediate health and safety. We here at Weather Heroes will continue to monitor this crucial issue, assessing whether communication resiliency increases in the future in the face of catastrophe. Thank you and take care.